morning. Let's pray. Father, as Bruce has already prayed, we don't have to strive and struggle to know you. For you have been revealed. You have revealed yourself. Emmanuel, Christ with us, God with us. Christ has come down and he's given us his word and he's left us his spirit. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning. Help us have eyes to see that uh, these words would jump off the page to us, that they would become alive and that they would, as the seed goes out, that it would fall on good soil and that we would be receptive to hear what you have to teach us, what you have to say to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I say the word discipline, I wonder what images come to your mind. Um, If you are parents, you probably are thinking about children and having to discipline a a disobedient child. Uh, You may think of uh, an athlete who uh, disciplines their body for training for competition, or you may think uh, of an academic discipline, as in a, a field of study, a particular area of study. If I say discipline in the church... Uh, It doesn't always have good associations, does it? People see it as a negative word. There's so many uh, negative analogies and associations that we may draw from. Uh, A friend of mine was in a a particular denomination, and um, the church exercised uh, discipline on him, and they put in their bulletin, uh, please say goodbye to so-and-so because they will not, this will be their last week and they will be with us no longer. Uh, there was no explanation, there was no clarity, uh, just a cold shoulder and a swift kick. Now some of you may have grown up in a legalistic home or in a legalistic church. You have seen what unrealistic expectations and unhelpful rules can do to families or to congregations. And what is the response to these things? Often these things give us churches like we see today. High-profile preachers in churches having affairs, or senior ministers who abuse children, or church leaders caught in uh, same-sex relationships. Typically, in the church, one of the primary responses to legalism is hyper-grace. Legalism weighs people down with the law that is man-made, or It obeys the letter of the law without understanding or recognizing the spirit of the law or even the greater purpose of the law. One person once said, the essence of Christian theology is grace and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. The legalist isolates the law of God from the God who gave the law. He is not so much uh, seeking to obey God or to honor Christ as he is to obey the rules that are devoid of any kind of personal relationship. Uh, we've been studying John's gospel in, uh, on Thursday nights in my 20s and 30s group uh, over the last few weeks. And we're up to the wedding in Cana and Jesus turning the water into wine 
And um, I had Jeremy teach for me last week, and he was saying, uh, last Thursday, and he was saying that the jars that uh, Jesus uses are jars that were created for Jewish purification, for washing of hands. Something that God gave to the Levites to remind them of their need to wash away sin in their lives. But it become this uh, thing where it was just a ritual. It was just a ritual. They washed their hands and their feet out, feet out of a custom or religious practice. Instead of recognizing the deep symbolism that it was signifying. That is legalism. And hypergrace in that instance would say, wash, don't wash, it doesn't matter. Hypergrace says, Jesus paid it all and I owe him nothing. All my sins are covered under Christ. Therefore, since I am saved, I can sin to my heart's content as license. And both these ways of thinking, legalism and hypergrace, cause huge problems in the church and with the people of God. Why do I mention these things? In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the Corinthians over specific issues that he has heard are going on in that particular church. One of which is a man who has taken his father's wife. Now, the commentaries say this is probably, assuming it's not his mother, or it would have said his mother, but it's probably a stepmother who may have even been close in age to the son if the father had remarried a a younger woman. As horrible and disgusting as that situation is, Paul is not addressing that issue itself, but he is addressing the church's response to this man or their lack of response. You are arrogant, Paul says. So why did the church act like this? Why are they doing this? It seems that Paul wrote an earlier letter to the Corinthians that we do not have. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter, my earlier letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. That seems to be what he's written. But the Corinthians misunderstand Paul and probably thought, if we're not to associate with sexually immoral people, how in the world are we supposed to reach the Gentile Corinthians? They don't know any different. Are we supposed to just leave those outsiders? And so they disregarded Paul's first letter, or at least parts of it, thinking Paul is being too legalistic. In fact, they believed Paul was hard in his letter writing and then soft when he was with uh, the body, with the fellowship. And so they were on the fence about what to listen to and what to ignore. And that's probably why there are all these factions and divisions in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. We follow Christ. And so Paul clarifies what he meant by this statement that he made in his previous letter. He says, Of course you can reach out to the outsider. Of course you can reach out to the lost 
And do not tell them to live by a standard that doesn't make sense to them. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? God judges those outside. His intention was to cast judgment on those in the church who call themselves Christians. Who are living in outright sin. Why would Paul say this? Why would Christians do this? We read this and we think, this isn't very loving. This isn't very gracious. This isn't very caring or, or merciful. Aren't we all shown grace from Christ? And therefore we need to be gracious with one another? And this is the type of thinking that is permeated into our church today. And what does Paul tell us? What does Paul tell us? Leaving our brothers and sisters in Christ trapped in their sin, that is not loving. That is not caring. That is not showing grace. That is destructive. If a brother or sister is heading down a dangerous path in life, if they have lost sight of what Jesus has done for them, instead are choosing lesser things, we need to do something. Because we are a family now. And family cares not for the short-term pleasure, but family cares for the everlasting soul. And we are under one head, Christ. And he cares about your everlasting soul. Before Peter denies Jesus, what does Jesus say to Simon Peter? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen the family. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, but he prayed for Peter's restoration. And when Peter is restored, what does Jesus say to him on the beach after the resurrection? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you really love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. You want to know what to do to show your love for me? Look after people. Look after God's people. Look after the body of believers. Look after the family of God. And that is what Paul is saying here. The devil seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And do you think that he's just happy with those who don't know Christ? No, 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 no. He wants to infiltrate the church and tear down individuals and tear down families and rip them apart and tear down church body groups. He wants to dismember the body of Christ. And he will do that if we allow these types of sins to fester within the body. So Paul says, though I'm not physically with you, I'm with you in spirit. And I have pronounced judgment on this man. Now, as you are assembled in the name of Jesus and his power is present, turn him over to Satan. Whoa, Paul. Cool it. (laughs) Turn him over to Satan. 
This is harsh. This is extremely harsh. Why does he say this? Why would he use these words? Turn him over for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved. This is not saying literally give him to Satan for damnation. It's saying give him, it's not saying uh, give him over that he may die. It's saying cut him out of the church fellowship. That he may feel that pain of cutting, that pain of removal. The absence of the community that loves and cares for one another. The inability to gather with the people of God whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who, who are no longer controlled by the sinful nature. No longer giving in to greed and idolatry and selfishness and rivalry and division. And the hope is that this person will feel that absence. And they would recognize where they have failed. And they would see their waywardness. And they would seek to be restored. This is not about punishing someone because we don't like them. This is not about getting back at someone who has wronged us personally. This is about caring for the souls of people that God has put us in community with. At my old church in Sydney, there was a a man who was a, a, a very valued member of the church. He was leading Bible study. He was doing all these sorts of helpful things. And then he began to, uh, he was living with his girlfriend. So the church came alongside and talked to him and explained why he can't do this. And his heart seemed to have hardened and there was no repentance and he didn't stop. And so finally they removed him from the fellowship. And then A few years later, our senior minister was at a conference, and uh, he ran into this man, and he thought, oh boy, you've probably gone into some other church. And, And the man explained that, no, he had actually repented, and he had realized what he had done was wrong, and he felt that removal and that cutting from the fellowship. And then he repents, and he's brought back, and he is restored Now, another example on the opposite end of the spectrum. There's churches where one in particular that I've seen and know of that was baptizing a a lesbian woman. And in her video, she she never makes a a profession of, uh, well, she makes a profession of faith, but she does not repent of her sins. She doesn't say, I once lived like this and now I want to live for Christ. Not that she's going to become perfect in this. But then they have her gay partner in the water with her, baptizing her. How is that helpful? How can you think, it, well, we're happy, you know, we want you to be here. We want you to come. We want you to hear the truth. We want you to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you're going to make a public profession of him, you have to renounce those sins that once entangled you. So how could a church say, carry on? Go your way without telling them. 
Those things that hinder us and those things that will, as we're about to look at, will spread throughout the church. This is about us being a family and loving one another. This is why I've entitled the series Maturity in the Church. We are striving to grow in maturity as a body, as a community of believers. And just because we're at the nine o'clock service does not separate us from this. We are remembering our foundations on Christ and Christ alone. We are putting off the old self, our old nature. We are united together under one head and therefore not fractured, not disunified. We're not promoting our own things and we're not promoting our own people. We are seeking to be presented mature in Christ, as Paul says to the Colossians. And now we're looking at what to do when one of us goes astray. How do we respond as a family? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Leaven or yeast doesn't just stay in the corner. For those of you who bake, you know this. No, if you mix it in with the loaf, it expands and it works its way through the whole thing. That's what Paul is saying about sin here. That issue will spread through the whole community. What one person does impacts the entire community. So any wrong, whether it is sexual or social or immoral or unjust, it has social effects. It can never be treated as if it were just a private matter. Take this man and his stepmother. Their relationship couldn't be something just between them. It affected the father. It affected the family. It affected the Corinthian community. Uh, For someone who has uh, felt condemned by Christians... That's not just between that person and that group of Christians that's done that. It it significantly influences uh, the way that that person feels about all Christians. I had a roommate. uh, He was from a Buddhist family. The family uh, escaped from Vietnam. And they're brought to the U.S. with the help of a church group. And after the church group helped the family find work and a place to live... They came to the family after a little while and said, Okay, it's time for you to convert now. We have done all these things for you, and now it's your duty to convert to Christianity, as if this was a transactional deal. And so now my friend and his family are very weary and skeptical of anything that has a whiff of Christianity. That now affects me and the way that I relate to my friend and his family. Because of the failure of that one church. That's why we have discipline. I would love to discipline that church. Because of the damage that they are doing. Not because I hate them, though this is upsetting. But because they will keep on doing this unless and until someone shows them their error. 
the goal is restoration of both the individual and the community. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Thousands of years ago, the Israelite people were groaning under the weight of the oppression by their stubborn and unjust captors. It wasn't that Israel was perfect. The Israelite people were obstinate and oppressive themselves, unwilling to change or seek help. But in spite of all of this, God intervened with a plague of death that would strike at the heart of the captors and set his people free. But there's a problem. This plague was uh, sent to swallow up the, the stubborn and the unjust and the oppressive. But that wasn't just for the Egyptians. That wasn't just for the captors. But it was for the Israelites as well. So what could they do? the sacrifice, the painted lintels and doorposts would cause this plague of death to pass over them. The blood of another, a a substitute, would protect them from danger and save them from death. And now, thousands of years later, the same story plays itself out. There was a plague of death for the obstinate, the stubborn and the unjust for you and for me. But again, someone would intervene with the blood of another, a substitute, a sacrifice that would protect us from danger and save us from death. Christ, our Passover lamb. Because isn't that what the Passover was pointing to? Living a life of sincerity, understanding what God had done in freeing His people and would do finally, and following Him in that truth, as opposed to allowing the leaven of uh, the leaven into the yeast, uh, which spoils that whole loaf, that leaven, that expanding yeast of uh, of malice and of evil. The yeast of unrepentant sin and the, the leaven of gossip and murmur and, and picking sides. No, we are one family and we must protect what God has entrusted to us. So look after one another if you care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But you see, the problem today is that Christians... We tend to hide in our own little groups. And we cast judgment on the outside world as heathen. Of course they're heathen. They are not Christian. (laughs) Do not expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian. I have a friend who tells me about his co-worker. He was telling me just the other day about this co-worker. The co-worker is clearly not a Christian. The things he does and says reflect a life totally apart from Christ, but my friend keeps referring to him as a brother. He's a brother. Well, he's a brother. He is not a brother. He is a person not in Christ. Therefore, we share Christ. 
we build the relationship with this person, but do not put expectations on these people that they are to know what we know. They do not have the Holy Spirit uh, confirming his good works in their lives and and giving them a desire for Christ-likeness. Those people we do not judge. They are already under God's judgment. No, we are to look after our own when it comes to discipline. We love the outsider and tell them about what Christ has done, but the family looks after one another in a special way. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them enough to speak truth in love? Would you love someone enough to hand them over to Satan, removing them from the church, that they could feel the weight of their sin, that they could feel the pain, the sting of that removal. Not in a sense of legalism, we want to beat them up, but in a sense of grace. We want restoration. We want to see people restored. Oh, that we would be people who Live and love like that. Let's pray. Father, I think our hearts tend to lean one way or the other. We either lean into legalism we lean the opposite into hypergrace, and the answer is neither. The answer is in the middle. The law is good for us. It shows us God's character, but it's pointing to greater realities. And when we understand what grace is, we understand what was needed for us. We understand the grace that was poured out for us. And to run headlong into grace and take it as license is dangerous. We may feel like a fractured group here at 9 o'clock. May that not be the case. That we see a brother or sister rushing headlong into sin and just Watch as it goes by. But would you burden our hearts as we looked at last week is thinking about how we have so many advisors and teachers but we don't have any fathers. Would you give us spiritual fathers? Would you give us spiritual mothers and brothers and sisters who look after one another like a family? That we would be called to repentance when our hearts run astray from you. That we would understand grace. That we would see it executed here. That discipline wouldn't be seen as a a negative and, and all those negative associations that come with it. But that it would be seen for what it is. That it is grace. That we want restoration. That we look after souls. We care for people. Not numbers. Oh, Father, that you would give us hearts like this.
that you would give us eyes to see.